Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. So 21's parents were brought in during the the first reintroduction in early 95, but he had not been born yet. He was born in Yellowstone. The day that he was born, his father was illegally shot and killed. They caught the guy that did that. He spent time in prison. But as a result of the shooting, his mother, Wolf Nine, when she gave birth on the very day that her mate was killed, she was a single mother with eight helpless pups. The reason that wolves live in a pack is a mother wolf needs a lot of help with her newborn. So it was gonna be pretty much impossible for her to keep that large litter alive. Normally the park service does not mount rescue attempts for wild animals in a park. This time they made an exception because it was such a terrible illegal act. So they caught the mother and the eight pups They put them back in the acclimation pen that the parents had been in. They fed them with roadkill deer and elk for the next two months, excuse me, six months. And the plan was to release them when the pups were um, at that six-month age. But the basic problem was still there, a single mother with eight very, very hungry pups. So we weren't very optimistic that they were going to survive. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books and Animal Studies channel on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the reviews editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies channel will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Rick McIntyre. Rick is one of the most celebrated wolf experts in America. He has a degree in forestry from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and has worked in Yellowstone National Park since 1994. He began his time in Yellowstone as a naturalist with the title of wolf interpreter. He became a biological technician for the Yellowstone Wolf Project in 1998 and has continued in that position ever since. Rick spent most of his adult life working for the National Park Service and has lived for many years in some of the most beautiful natural places in the world. His first position in 1975 was as a firefighter on the Helitrack crew in Sequoia National Park. He spent 15 summers in Denali National Park as a naturalist following wolves and grizzlies. He also followed wolf packs in Glacier National Park and served stints in Death Valley, Joshua Tree, and Big Bend National Parks, and in Anza Borrego Desert State Park in California. McIntyre wrote his first two books about his time in Denali. Denali National Park, An Island in Time, and Grizzly Club, Five Years in the Life of a Bear. McIntyre spent the last 24 years in Yellowstone National Park, 
rising at dawn nearly every day to study the wolf packs. According to McIntyre, Yellowstone is the best place on earth to observe wolves in the wild. Apart from the two books we will be discussing today, McIntyre also has two other wolf books to his credit, A Society of Wolves, National Parks and the Battle Over the Wolf, and War Against the Wolf, America's Campaign to Exterminate the Wolf. During his many years in Yellowstone, McIntyre has given lectures and field tours to tens of thousands of students, tourists, and wolf aficionados, and has helped countless people see wild wolves for the first time. Today, we will be discussing two of McIntyre's recent works. The first of the two books we discuss, The Rise of Wolf 8, Witnessing the Triumph of Yellowstone's Underdog, introduces us to the wolves of Yellowstone National Park. Yellowstone National Park was once home to an abundance of wild wolves, but park rangers killed the last of their kind in the 1920s. Decades later, the rangers brought them back, with the first wolves arriving from Canada in 1995. This is an incredible true story of one of those wolves. Wolf 8 struggles at first. He's smaller than the other pups and often bullied, but soon he bonds with an alpha female whose mate was shot. An unusually young alpha male, barely a teenager in human years, Wolf 8 rises to the occasion, hunting skillfully and even defending his family from the wolf who killed his father. But soon he faces a new opponent, his adopted son, who mates with a violent alpha female. Can Wolf 8 protect his family without harming his protege? The second book we're discussing, The Reign of Wolf 21, the saga of Yellowstone's legendary druid pack, continues the story. In this compelling follow-up to the national bestseller, The Rise of Wolf 8, Rick McIntyre profiles one of Yellowstone's most revered alpha males, Wolf 21. Leader of the druid pack, Wolf 21 was known for his unwavering bravery, his unusual benevolence, unlike other alphas, he never killed defeated rival males, and his fierce commitment to his mate, the formidable Wolf 42. Wolf 21 and Wolf 42 were attracted to each other the moment they met, but Wolf 42's jealous sister interfered viciously in their relationship. After an explosive insurrection within the pack, the two wolves came together at last as leaders of the Druid Peak Pack, which dominated the park for more than 10 years. McIntyre recounts the pack's fascinating saga with compassion and a keen eye for detail drawing on his many years of experience observing Yellowstone wolves in the field. His outstanding work of science writing offers unparalleled insight into wolf behavior and Yellowstone's famed wolf reintroduction project. It also offers a love story for the ages. Welcome, Rick, and thank you for joining us today. Hey, Mark. Thanks a lot. Glad to, to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. So my first inclination would be to tell you how amazing I think your books are, but I know that you probably get that a lot and from experts better qualified to judge the scientific importance of what you've accomplished. So instead I'll begin just by saying how much your books have moved me. I was first introduced to your work when I read Carl Safina's wonderful book, Beyond Words, and his chapter in particular, his chapter, A Perfect Wolf about the Wolf 21, had me sobbing and that is not something I do very often or very easily. And in fact, I found myself crying again while reading both of these books. It is moving stuff. There's something special, of course, about the wolves, and in particular, the wolves you profile, but it, the books wouldn't be the same if they weren't 
written by a less informed author, less personally invested in the subject matter. So really bravo and thank you for your work and for writing these wonderful books. Thank you, Mark. That, that's very kind of you to say. Um, I certainly feel that it was my privilege to, to be here in Yellowstone and get to see these things. My, in, in some ways, I kind of feel like I was a reporter, maybe even at times a war correspondent in some of the things I, I get to witness. And I felt I was given a real gift to be able to be here and witness those things. And therefore, if you receive a gift, you want to be you want to give things back. You want to give back. And so that was the whole reason I wanted to write up the story so everyone could have the same experience I had in, in seeing what these wolves, what their lives are like. Yes. Well, that sense of the privilege that you feel comes through on every page. To begin, would you like to just just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, how you came to this line of work? Sure. It's not at all typical for a person that researches wolves. I'm kind of an outlier in many ways. I grew up in a rural part of Massachusetts went to college back there, got a degree in forestry, forest management, worked for the U.S. Forest Service for a while, then figured out that I would be a better fit in the National Park Service. My first job, I was uh, on a helitack firefighting crew in Sequoia National Park. I realized by then that I was real interested in being a naturalist for the Park Service. Those are the people that work with visitors, do the campfire talks, the slideshows, nature walks, things like that. So I volunteered to do some programs in Sequoia. And then to simplify a long story, I applied for a lot of jobs in other parks the next year and got an offer from the number one place I wanted to go, which was in Alaska at Mount McKinley National Park. And I ended up being there for 15 summer seasons. So that's where I first began to see wolves and study them. Worked a little bit in Glacier National Park. They also have wolves there. But certainly the big deal was starting in Yellowstone. That was in 1994, the year before the reintroduction. And I kind of just fell into it. I felt it was just, I was very, very lucky. Um, that was, I, I started a little bit before Doug Smith and Mike Phillips began the Wolf Project here. So when I arrived in the spring of 94, I was the, the only ranger that actually had been around wild wolves in other parks. I was designated as the wolf interpreter, and that meant that all of my programs for park visitors were on the wolves. Specifically, what I mean by that is I would explain that we had a proposal to reintroduce wolves back in the park. I'm sure you and your listeners likely know that wolves were very much a native animal in Yellowstone, but they were all killed off. So this is a, a proposal to restore them. And then partway through that summer, the proposal was approved in Washington. So then I shifted what I said slightly to say that we will be doing a reintroduction and then explain what the, the plan was. So that's how I ended up in Yellowstone and how I began here. So you, you mentioned that the wolves had previously been killed off and then there was a reintroduction. And 
it's very likely that many or some of our listeners will have some awareness of that. But would you tell us a little bit about that? What what happened to the wolves? Why were they killed off? And then what was the motivation for reintroducing them? Well, it's certainly one of the saddest chapters in American history, but the killing off of wolves go all the way back to the very early days of the colonies on the East Coast to the 1600s, where pretty much every colonial government passed laws encouraging the killing of wolves and offering cash bounties. Even what is now Manhattan Island, downtown New York City, in the 1600s, the the original Dutch colony there, they felt that there were way too many wolves in Manhattan Island. And so there was a cash bounty. If you killed a wolf in what is now New York City, you would get money for it. So uh, it was professionalized in the early 1900s when Congress passed some acts and some budgets authorizing a federal agency to have what certainly was designated as a extermination program for wolves and other predators. And throughout the whole country, they had already been wiped out pretty much in the East, but uh, the program was very intensive in the West. And it's hard to believe, but eventually that even included Yellowstone National Park. So if I had been a ranger here during those early days, the 19-teens, the 1920s, et cetera, it's very likely that I would have been assigned along with other fellow rangers to go out and kill wolves. They would try to find where the wolves were denning. They would kill the pups. They would set up an ambush, shoot the parents when they came back. The story had a climax in 1926 at a site only about 15 miles from where I'm talking right now, near the Lamar River, where a bison died. The local rangers encircled the carcass with steel wolf traps. They came out the next morning. Two young adult wolves were caught in the traps. They were shot and killed. And as far as we know, those were the last two Yellowstone walls. It was complete extermination. And then the motivation for reintroducing them. I know there are multiple motivations from just the the fact that this is the wolves are native there, but also the broader ecological motivations for introducing them. Well, there's so much to say about that. Um, it would be you know, easily a conversation of more than an hour. And the, the earliest people that were for it, but I'll mention one man, Aldo Leopold. He actually was a professional wolf killer for the U.S. Forest Service for many years, but had a, a famous experience where he killed a mother wolf and many of her pups, went down to make sure that she was dead looked her in the eye, saw that she was still alive, and eventually wrote an essay about seeing a fierce green fire in her eyes. And that experience converted him into having an understanding that wolves were necessary in wild areas. I'm going to assume that your listeners are are very familiar with all the reasons for that, Um, in addition to the fact that they're a native animal to, to North America. He eventually became a very influential college professor and wrote an essay called Thinking Like a Mountain, where he put down his thoughts on why we we need wolves in the environment. And uh, that was published in the 1940s, but it was especially influential. And um, he actually was the first person to suggest, and this was in the 1940s, that 
Willsby brought back to Yellowstone. He was way, way, way before his time, but he was right. And um, eventually his dream was fulfilled in 1995. And one of the first naturally forming packs here in the very early years, we named that pack the Leopold Pack in his honor. Aldo Leopold, someone certainly for our listeners to look up if they're not familiar with him. So would you briefly describe the park for our listeners? And I'm I'm asking less about the physical description of the layout of the park, although if that's relevant, you can share that. But more, what is the environment that the wolves are being reintroduced into? Mm-hmm. What are the main other species that the wolves interact with? And the, the main factors that they would expect that they would encounter upon their reintroduction. Okay. Well, um, to go over just a little bit of history, Yellowstone was the first national park in the world set aside in 1872. It's about 2 million acres in size. That's in the neighborhood of 3,500 square miles. It's very close to the border of Northern Wyoming and Southern Montana. Uh, I live near the northeast corner of the park. It's certainly one of the largest and the most pristine examples of what North America originally was, as well as the American West. If we were here in the 1870s, it would have had a a very full and complete contingent of all the native animals um, of that region, uh, certainly including wolves, grizzlies, coyotes, elk, bison, everything that you would imagine. So uh, we've already talked about the extermination of wolves. So once they were gone, there's so much to say, but one issue was that the elk population exploded because their primary predator, the, the wolf, had all been killed off. And the excess number of elk were doing a lot of damage to the vegetation, which in turn was harmful to the elk themselves because they were essentially overpopulating their habitat. So I've asked you to tell us about the park, uh, but another part of this story is the human areas outside of the park. And in your book, you write about some death threats towards the wolves and armed guards to protect them. So I'm curious if you could tell us, describe for us some of the human attitudes uh, of towards the wolves in the areas around the park. Well, certainly the reintroduction was controversial. There was massive support from it from the general public, but certainly there was a contingent that was totally against it. And uh, there were threats of violence where the park received information that there were some plans to kill the wolves. Now, to explain what I'm referring to, I, I need to go into some of the details of the reintroduction. So wolves were caught, wild wolves, free living wolves were caught in Alberta and brought down in early 1995, a total of 17, uh, comprising three packs. The plan was as best they could to capture wolf families that were intact that would likely stay together on release. They, each family was put in their own acclimation pen And the plan was to keep them in there for about two months to get used to their new home and let them go. No one had ever really done anything like this before, so it was a true experiment. And I'll just say that once they were released, it worked very well. The wolves seemed to understand that now this was their new home. And for the most part, there were some exceptions, but 
for the most part, they stayed in the general area where they were released. But getting back to the acclimation pens, each pen was about an acre or so in sight, surrounded by a chain link fence. So the threats that were being received about killing the wolves, the law enforcement rangers realized that a clever person could figure out a number of different ways to sneak in there and, and kill them. I, I won't go into detail because I don't want to give anybody ideas, but the threats were taken seriously. So the response to it was that 24 hours a day for roughly the two months that each of the three first packs were in their acclimation packs, law enforcement uh, rangers were stationed in the area, sort of in an over undercover uh, type operation. And again, I can't really go into details. So they were guarding the walls. And fortunately, nothing happened. Now, because of that security, you never know if they were just empty threats or if during the two months there were bad guys that came intending to kill the wolves, but they realized that uh, the security was going to be too tight for them to accomplish anything and they turned away. So um, who knows? But in the end, there were no problems and the wolves were fine. It's it's one of the many beautiful things that in your book is this this vision of the of the rangers guarding these wolves as if they're really precious precious individuals which of of course they are but it's not that often that humans treat these animals with with that level of of care and and respect I I just find it moving thinking about it Mark if I could just add something to that. And that would be this thought. It, it, it's certainly just an amazing thing to consider that the early Yellowstone Rangers were in the business of, of exterminating wolves, whereas the modern Yellowstone Rangers were in the business of protecting um, the reintroduced wolves. So that part of the story is just a, an amazing contrast. Yeah, there's a beautiful symmetry to it. Um... Even to the point, presumably, and I, I hope this wasn't a, a very real threat, but even to the point where the Rangers were certainly, you know, taking some personal risk at, at the expense of, of the wolves. So it, 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 it's just, it's just I, I just find it really beautiful. Could, so can I ask you to try to describe the social dynamics of a wolf pack? Um, just a few things, t- touch on whatever you think is relevant, but what is the hierarchy, of course, but... What forms of empathy and compassion and play do you find? So I'm just trying to get a, a sense of what are some of the personality traits and the what's, what, is, what do you find when you study a wolf pack? Well, in many ways, a wolf pack, or you could say a wolf family, is comparable to a human family, especially an extended human family. So a typical wolf pack will form where one young male from his pack leaves home, that's called dispersing, goes out there, which is a very risky, dangerous thing to do. And um, his intent is to find a mate. So that may well be a female that's also dispersed, or perhaps he'll take the risk of going into another family's territory, howling, trying to advertise his availability, kind of like a Romeo uh, going under the balcony of Juliet and reciting poetry. 
And if he's lucky, maybe one of the daughters in the family will hear that and come wanting to meet him. So it would be two young wolves, perhaps in the neighborhood of two or three years old each, meeting each other for the first time, deciding that they want to stay together. And that's the easy part, finding a partner. The hard part is finding a vacant territory. So even though Yellowstone is 2 million acres, we feel that there's only room for about 10 wolf pack territories, or wolf families here. An average territory here is maybe about 300 square miles. So it's maybe comparable to, let's just say a, a, an average uh, a human family, they wanna start a business, whether it's a McDonald's or you know whatever you want. Um, they need to find a good location where they're going to be able to support themselves. They have to consider the competition. Some businesses fail, some thrive, and that's how it is with wolves. A certain percentage of new packs don't make it. They fall apart, and others become dynasties that last uh, for many, many generations. The mating season is in February, and then the pups are born two months later in late April. Wolves can breed for the first time and have their their own pups when they're two years old. So it could be that the process that I just described about a young male leaving home, finding a female, then will be replicated a few years down the line with some of the adult sons and daughters of the original founding pair. An average pack in Yellowstone is about 10 wolves. However, one of the packs that we're studying right now, the, the Junction Butte pack, it's a little bit broken up right now, but it's the second largest pack ever. If they were all together, there'd be 34. Uh, we saw them today, and today there was probably only about 23. It looks like some of them um, have already left home and are starting a, a new pack. So those are some basic points of information about starting a pack. Oh, also I should get into the issue of leadership. It was incorrectly assumed, I think because of a bias from male biologists, that the, the, the big shot, strong looking alpha male would be the leader of the pack. No, he isn't, it's the alpha female. So she is the true boss of the operation and the alpha male just works for her. So there's a separate male and female hierarchy Generally, we call the top male the alpha male, and on the other side, the alpha female. So the alpha female really makes all the big decisions throughout the year. The most important one would be where to den, and then later where to take the pups when they're older. They work together when they're hunting. They work together to raise the new pups. They work together to defend the family against rival packs. So um, it, it, in many, many ways, it's like a, a human family. The better they work together, the better they cooperate, the more successful that they're going to be. If they're squabbling and fighting a lot, then their chances of success is not so good. One of the things that's especially fascinating in your book is the way that you describe the, the various forms of intelligence that wolves deploy during the hunt. I'm thinking in particular of the way they use vision and smell to identify weaknesses in their prey in really extraordinary fashions, and also the way that the wolves cooperate with each other in the process. Could you talk to us a little bit about that, about wolves in the hunt? Sure. 
Um, first of all, they have very good eyesight, probably better than ours. So most of Yellowstone is open country. So when wolves are on the hunt, we, we get a really good look at what they're doing. So let's just say if you have 10 or 12 wolves, they travel as a pack, as a group through a valley. And they're always looking around. They're always perceiving what's going on. Their primary prey here would be elk. An average wolf is about 100 pounds, but an adult cow elk can be 300, a big bull elk, 700 pounds. So those are big targets for animals that are only just a small proportion of that size. But with their eyesight, I would imagine that what the wolves are looking for is some sign of weakness. A, an elk that's traveling with a herd and is lagging behind, or perhaps they see that it's limping or maybe hanging its head down low, like it just is feeling bad. Its sense of smell, which is as good as a bloodhound, uh, perhaps they'd get the scent of um, infection, disease. A good example of that was something that I, I write about in one of my books, where um, two wolves that were trying to start a, a pack, they were traveling together. The female, as usual, was in charge. And they were coming into an area where there were already maybe three or 400 elk that were standing in the open. But the female wolf found a scent trail. And she ignored all the nearby elk, paid no attention to them. The only thing that was she was interested in was putting her nose, it was the winter, down on the snow and following the central of that one elk. And I, I had to figure out that she knew what she was doing. The male was dutifully following her lead. They zigzagged back and forth for maybe a half a mile. The elk are smart enough to know when they see wolves doing that, they don't have to worry about anything. The wolves are paying no attention to them as they just stand there. So eventually, after a half a mile, the female stopped. She lifted her head, looked ahead. There was a small stand of trees. There seemed to be something there that she was aware of. I couldn't see anything. The male was perking up. They charged forward into those trees. Sure enough, a cow elk ran out. A normal healthy elk can easily outrun wolves. These wolves easily caught her, pulled her down, and she was dead within a minute. So she was obviously in very, very poor shape. So the way I interpreted all that was in her tracks, in the snow, that female wolf could figure out something was really wrong with this cow. And that's the only thing she wanted to investigate, that one cow. And she proved to be extremely smart about that. And the male was smart enough to follow her lead. So I think that's how it works. They're very perceptive. They trust their senses. They can figure things out really well. And that's why they've been a successful species worldwide for so many millennia. Yeah, it's almost a whole new uh, sensory organ. So I'd like to ask you to tell us a bit about a few of the main wolves in your story. And I, I feel a bit bad asking about the most famous wolves. I know that all of the wolves that you study are each extraordinary characters, but two of the main ones are are really above and beyond. So if you wouldn't mind, would you just introduce us to Eight and his adopted son, 21? In your book, you describe these two as, quote, the greatest wolf who ever lived and the one that was greater than him, end quote. And I know that that's maybe a bit rhetorical, but there's something, there's some truth to it as well. So could you just tell us a little bit about these two extraordinary wolves? 
Sure, yes. Um, let me just take a step back if um, your listeners might not be uh, familiar with the, the difference between my two first Yellowstone Wolf books. The first one, The Rise of Wolf 8, tells eight story in the first half of 21's life story. And in the second book, The Reign of Wolf 21, finishes uh, 21's story and also gets into his relationship with his longtime mate, 42. So there's so much to say, but let me see if I can uh, condense it. So 21's parents were brought in during the, the first reintroduction in early 95, but um, he had not been born yet. He was born in Yellowstone. The day that he was born, his father was illegally shot and killed. They caught the guy that did that. He spent time in prison. But as a result of the shooting, his mother, Wolf Nine, when she gave birth on the very day that her mate was killed, she was a single mother with eight helpless pups. The reason that wolves live in a pack is a mother wolf needs a lot of help with her newborn. So it was going to be pretty much impossible for her to keep that large litter alive. Normally, the Park Service does not mount rescue attempts for wild animals in a park. This time they made an exception because it was such a terrible, illegal act. So they caught the mother and the eight pups. They put them back in the acclimation pen that the parents had been in. They fed them with roadkill deer and elk for the next two months, excuse me, six months. And the plan was to release them when the pups were um, at that six-month age. But the basic problem was still there, a single mother with eight very, very hungry pups. So we weren't very optimistic that they were going to survive. Now, Wolf 8 had a totally different story. He was also brought down in that first year in 1995 in his original family, his parents and three brothers. He was the runt of his litter. And when they were in the acclimation pen, the law enforcement rangers that were trotting them told me that his bigger brothers would beat him up, would bully him, would make him eat last. So he, he really had a tough time, kind of like a small kid in grammar school being bullied by the bigger kids. But once he was released, he had a much better time because there was so much more to do. His brothers were distracted. And so life became a lot better for him. Uh, a jump ahead in time, he was about a year and a half old at uh, in the fall of 1995. And that was the time when the other family with the mother wolf and the ape pups, including the pup known as 21, were released. We think that eight had heard howling from um, up in um, that drainage, and he walked up there to see what was going on. We think that he came around a corner and saw something that he had never seen before in his life, and that was wolves that were smaller than he was. So prior to that day, every day of his life, he was always the smallest one. And now he saw some of the pups had already come out of the den. And what happened was he had compassion for them, empathy. So he went over and made friends with those first few pups, played with them. The mother wolf watched that from a safe distance. She was desperate. So she eventually went over and essentially invited him to join the pack is the new alpha male. He adopted and raised those pups, including 21. 
So that was one of the most uh, critical and important moments of the whole reintroduction where he saved that family. And certainly due to his background and his size, um, it was a, a big, big question whether he would ever succeed as an alpha male, but he certainly did spectacularly. So he grew into it and became a, a great, great hero and became a, the role model and the mentor for 21 who apprenticed unto him. I, it's impossible in the time span that we have to convey the immensity of, of these two wolves. And I, I simply have to direct our listeners to, to both of your books. It, it is an extraordinary story. Next, I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about Wolves 40 and 42, who were sisters who both in, in turn partnered with 21. These two wolves had radically different personalities, and those personalities had real consequences on the fate of their pack, the Druid pack, which they led along with 21. So would you mind talking to us a little bit about these two and the the impact that their different personalities had on the health of the pack? Yes, yeah, that's a good summary, uh, Mark. So thanks for going over that. Let me just say that 21 stayed with his original family, meaning his mother, for two and a half years. He spent uh, a year and a half under the apprenticeship of Wolf 8, learned everything that he knew about being an adult male, being a father, and being an alpha male from um, imitating Wolf 8. So 8 was a huge, huge influence on 21. But jumping forward, when 21 was two and a half years old, it was the fall of 1997, it was time for him to set out on his own. And he walked away from the security and the safety of his family. And he did something that seemed very foolhardy to us. He walked right into the middle of the territory of a rival pack, the Druid Peak Pack. They were brought down in the second year of the reintroduction. And the Druids had a reputation for being especially aggressive. Their huge alpha male number 38 was a, a violent wolf. He had actually killed Eight's father. Uh, the most, I think I had already mentioned, uh, the most common cause of death in Yellowstone is wolves killing other wolves since we don't allow human hunting and trapping here. So 21 walked into what amounted to enemy territory. But 21 was gifted with uh, having great luck and good timing throughout his life. And we don't know if he had figured this out or not. But when he arrived there, the Druid walls had just gone through a terrible tragedy. Both 38 and the only other adult male in their family had just been illegally killed outside the park by a bad guy, just like 21's own father had been illegally killed. So when 21 showed up in the middle of the Druid territory as a lone adult male with a lot of experience, uh, um, a lot of great traits in his personality and his character, he encountered a wolf pack that was desperate for a new alpha male. There were five pups in the family. Uh, the alpha female was a, an old one, number 39, and she had three adult daughters, 40, 41, and 42. 
So they were looking for a new guy, and here's the perfect candidate that showed up for a for an audition, so to speak. Bob Landis, the cinematographer, was out that day, and he actually filmed the whole process of 21 walking into that area, the female seeing him from a distance, cautiously approaching him. And it turned out that the pups were the first ones. Uh, they saw this big guy, and they seemed to really take a, a shining to him. So they ran up, and he wagged his tail and greeted them in a very friendly way, just the same way that Aid had greeted the the pups when he joined the Rose Creek pack. So the older females, when they saw that, they reassured him. And within about an hour or so, he was in as their new alpha male. Now, getting back to your, your question about particularly Wolf 40, boy, she's an example of kind of the extreme of wolf behavior because she, boy, she may well have been classified as a psychopath uh, in human terms. So she drove her own mother, Wolf 38, out of the family, did the thing, same thing to one of her sisters, Wolf 41, and uh, for the next few years attacked the remaining sister, 42, in a merciless way. So I, I oftentimes when I talk about 40, I, I suggest the possibility that for, the, for your listeners who are familiar with uh, Game of Thrones and their characters, Queen Cersei may well have been based on 40's personality. They had a lot of common in the sense that they would very quickly resort to violence to achieve their ends. So the story with 21 was that he was very, very compatible with the non-violent sister, the non-aggressive sister, the non-psychotic sister, 42. They were pretty much perfectly matched. And he uh, was kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum of 40. But um, this appears to be the case with all the male wolves that I've studied here. It seems like they have this uh, very, very strong inhibition to do anything within their pack to harm one of the the female members. It's like maybe they, they felt they were trained that way by their mother, that the mother is in charge or Maybe I'll say the alpha female. So 21 by that time was the undisputed heavyweight champion at Yellowstone, had never been defeated in battle, but he had no idea how to deal with this psychotic alpha female. And when uh, 40 would beat up 42, it was really a difficult thing for me to watch, as I, I guess it was for 21. Now, there would be times where 40 would run away and she would run over to 21 and kind of get behind him. And he had a, a manner where he was able to project a, a, a sense of confidence that um, even worked on 40 to an extent where 40 thought that she'd just run after her sister and continue to beat her up. But if she saw that 21 was standing between them, she would stop and hesitate and generally would just kind of walk away. Now, 21 in no way was acting aggressive. He just kind of stood there like he was projecting this feeling to 40, you're there, I'm here, 42 is behind me, let's just leave it like that. And 40 took the hint. Um, So 21 had ways of dealing with situations that was nonviolent, even though he had the force and the 
strength to, to defeat any male wolf that ever lived. So it was just a fascinating thing to, to see how he handled situations like that. And it's also, it's interesting to read in your book about the, the success of the pack under uh, 40 and then, and then under 42 and how superficially one would think that perhaps the, the ultra domineering uh, alpha female would be more successful. But in fact, what we see is that the pack struggled to a degree under 40 and really flourished after 40 passed away and 42 became the alpha female. Yes, let's talk about that. That's a good part of the story to bring up. There's a lot of interest in people that are experts in in animal behavior, going all the way back to Charles Darwin, where uh, there's, I think, a much better understanding of the advantages of cooperation when a species lives in a group as opposed to the old theory of survival of the fittest, that the, the most aggressive, the strongest, uh, the biggest, et cetera, member of a troop, whether it's a alpha female wolf or uh, the biggest lowland gorilla, uh, you know, whatever, in a, a group living species is always gonna be the dominant one and the most aggressive one is gonna have the most offspring, et cetera. Well, it turns out that it may well be the opposite of that it may well be the most cooperative one, the one that's the the best leader in the sense of getting everyone to work together. Now, I'm sure everyone that's listening to our program here would have many examples in their own life, perhaps uh, in their family, in a work situation, people that have been in the military, uh, almost anything that you can think of, athletes on teams, where if you have a, a boss, a leader, whatever, with a very aggressive domineering personality, it, it tends just not to work well. The individuals that, uh, that are really respected, that care for uh, the folks that they're supervising and managing, uh, they really are out to help them, to try to get everyone to have the best I- environment and cooperate. In the long run, those are the ones that succeed the best as leaders. And that certainly is true of wolves. So I, I could go into statistics, excuse me, to, to explain how the pup survival rate under 40 was relatively poor. But beyond that, 40 did two years in a row what is pretty much the absolute worst thing that an alpha female could do in a wolf pack. We have good reason to believe that during those two springs, she killed all of the pups that had been born to her sister, 42. So in both cases, she went to 42's den. She was there for a while. Both dens were out of sight to us. And after she left, there were never any surviving pups. So just imagine the disruption to a wolf pack of one female doing that to another, particularly to a sister. And 21, as I said, was helpless to figure out how to deal with that. But everything came to a head the third spring, and uh, I'll relate that that story. I'm going to have to be brief and really condense it, but essentially what happened was 42 for years had worked on treating the lower ranking and younger females in the family really well. She would help them, share food with them, was cooperative with them, help them deal with 40, and so those younger females were on 42's side. 
So uh, this in the year 2000, 40 dens separately from 40, about five miles away. And she had two helpers, two younger adult females, the ones that were her allies. Late one day, I saw 40 march from her den and go up into the forest where 42 had already had her pups. Because of the trees, I couldn't see what was happening. But I had to assume that 40's intent was to kill once again for a third time 42's pups. It got dark, I had to go home, came out the next morning. Both of those sisters had radio callers, so I got the signals from both 40 and 42 over in that same area. And then a woman came to me and she was in great, great distress. And she said, there's a, an injured wolf on the side of the road. And so very close to where we were, yes, there was a wolf just drenched in blood. And I thought that the worst had happened that this was 42, that 42 had, had finally had it out with her sister, and this was the end result of it, that she was going to die of, the, of these mortal wounds that 40 had inflicted on her. But then we realized that on taking a closer look, it wasn't 42. In fact, it was 40. She died a short time later. When the uh, necropsy was done on her, her whole body was just full of wolf bites, just everywhere. What that meant was that it was more than one wolf that had attacked her. So here's what I think happened. She did go up to her sister's den. She did start the process of killing 42's pups, but apparently for the first time, 42 stood up to her sister. She fought with 40. 42 just didn't have that aggressive streak in her. So in a fight between those two adult sisters, there's no way that she could have won, but yet she did. So that's why I mentioned all those wolf bites, her two allies, those younger females that she had helped over the years. What had to happen in that moment when she was being counterattacked by 40 is her two friends jumped in on her side, and now it was three against one. The fact, as, as best as we could tell, the facts are that they defeated 40, they beat her up, but they let her go. So when they stepped away, she was still alive. She got about maybe a mile or so away from the den to where we found them, found her, excuse me. But as I've already said, she died of the blood loss. So the rest of the story is even more amazing as what I've already relayed. 21 was back at the main den where 40 had her pups. And the, the, the pups were crying out to be nursed. They were still only a few weeks old. 21, obviously, as a male, was helpless to do anything about that. So 21 took this huge chance and gamble. He went over to 42's den, got her, brought her back to her sister's den in hopes, I, I have to assume, that she would do something to enable 40's pups to survive, namely nurse them. Now, the reason I say that was a big chance was, boy, why wouldn't 42 kill all of her sister's pups to make sure that none of them grew up to be like their mother? But to make a long story short, and to save some time, I'll, I'll cut to the climax of the story. It took us about a month or so uh, of watching the den before we got a good view of how many pups were actually up there. And we realized that not only had 42 spared the life of her sister's pups, but she had nursed them, cared for them, fed them, had raised them. And so by the end of the year, all of her own pups and all of 
40s pups who survived, which was a far, far higher success rate than 40 had ever had in her life. And that was because of 42's leadership abilities, her cooperative um, nature. And so that's probably one of the best examples we've ever had here of the difference between a super aggressive wolf and how unsuccessful she was. If you look at the, the whole story of her life, as opposed to her sister who had an opposite personality, who was the template for uh, cooperation and how successful she was. Right. So the, the listener is beginning to get a sense of the Shakespearean scale of, of some of these stories that unfold in your books. So I don't want to miss the opportunity to ask you to tell us about one of the, the battles. These are extraordinary things to, to read through while in your book. Really, really powerful stuff. So would you describe in your own words one of the battles and what it was like to witness it and to have so much invested in these wolves as they're charging towards one another? Sure. Um, and thanks for asking that's one more um, good question. The one that comes to mind, and certainly one of the most dramatic moments I've ever had in my life, it happened after the, the death of 40. 21 and 42 and some of their pups were uh, kind of at the, the far end of their territory, at least what they regard as their territory. And um, at the time, they were in an area where there was a new pack that was forming. I think there were about uh, seven adult wolves in that group. And 21 and 42, when they just happened to be separate from uh, the other druid wolves, it was just the two parents and one of their new pups. Um, they were going up a slope and they ran into the rival wolves, which numbered seven of them. And so uh, those wolves thought that this was their territory. So they regarded 21's group as the enemy. And certainly for 21, him being the alpha male, his primary responsibility was to protect his family. So I think I already mentioned that he was undefeated in battles. And so he had a lot of confidence, but yet his side was outnumbered seven to three. And one of the members on his side was just a pup, meaning would not be much of a help. And um, 42, her strength and her gift was cooperation and uh, management, not fighting. Uh, so it was pretty much up to 21. And it, it, it's hard to convey what it was like seeing 21 in action. It, it would be like literally watching an action movie or a Marvel superhero movie where Captain America fights seven opponents and, and ends up beating them all. 21 could actually do that in real life. So he was fighting with the other big males and, and, and winning the contest. And um, so just uh, another day in the life of 21. And I'm going to try to simplify this story in the interest of saving time. Um, once things slowed down, I, I lost track of 42. The battle was over. 21 was slowly moving downhill with the pup. He was kind of in charge of taking care of the pup at the moment. 
And then the other seven wolves came back. They saw 21 in the pub, and so they mounted a new attack. And um, now that it was only the one adult and, and pup, 21 had to change his strategy a little bit. Um, his priority was the safety of the pup. So the pup panicked and started to run downhill. 21 is the protector, I think did exactly the correct thing. He ran behind the pup, meaning he was between the rival wolves and, and the pup. And because the pup was so young, it wasn't able to run fast. So the seven wolves were gaining and gaining on 21's group. And the seven wolves reached 21 and all seven grabbed him, yanked him down and attacked him. So he was on the ground fighting for his life. However, that meant that the pup was getting away. Um, I looked back at 21 and I, I actually couldn't see him anymore because he was surrounded by the wolves. He was still on the ground and it looked like this was going to be it. There would be no saving him. Uh, even the great 21, this was now more than he could handle. And so and that, that was probably one of the lowest moments of my entire life. But it turned out there was going to be more to that story because out of nowhere, a rescue party ran in, and it was led by the wolf that was so good at organizing things, meaning Wolf 42. Somehow, when she left, what she had done, unknown to me, and I guess even to 21, she rounded up all these other Druid wolves, other pack members, organized them, ran back, attacked the group that was on 21, chased them away. Uh, it was just an amazing rescue to witness. But once things slowed down and I, I started to look around, I could see 42. I could see the other members of the rescue party. I eventually picked up the pup. It was fine. I could account for all the Jewed wolves except for one. And that was 21. And so my heart sank. It was very abnormal for him not to be with his family, but he just wasn't around. So after a while, as I was searching for him, I, I picked up um, 42. She was bedded like nothing had happened that day. She was resting. And I, it took me a moment to realize that there was another Jewed wolf standing beside her. And I, I was so emotional about what I've been witnessing over the last hour. Somehow my brain wasn't really functioning correctly. And I realized that the wolf standing next to her was 21. And he looked fine. He looked like nothing had happened that day, that he wasn't even in a fight. I later saw that he was lumping a little bit. I later saw that when 42 got up, she had a little bit of blood in her hip, but pretty minor injuries for what they had gone through. So that was the day where uh, he acted in his normal heroic uh, role, but he needed help. And when he needed help, it was 42 that rescued him. So it was just an amazing story. And in, in my book, The Reign of 21, as I relate that, that whole episode, um, I, I make a reference to uh, Rudyard Kipling's book, The Jungle Book. And uh, I'm sure your listeners have a recollection of the law of the wolves that he has in that book, where, if I can remember this, it says, for the strength of the wolf is the pack, 
and the strength of the pack is the wolf. And that's a pretty good summary of how wolves operate. So the way that I apply that saying to what I had seen that day was that it, in every other episode that I had watched the Druid walls, the pack, their strength, their superhero, essentially their Captain America, their Superman was always 21. He was the one that would rescue them. He was the hero. But this day, it was 21 that needed to be rescued. He needed the pack to save him. And the pack needed the organization that 42 could put together. So that was one of the, the peak, peak moments of my career watching Wolves, that particular episode. And I think that ultimately is an encapsulation as to what made 8 and 21 and 42 so extraordinary is the the diversity of their um of their abilities so they wolf and i'm sorry 21 and 8 were very capable of being very strong and and defending their territory but they were also capable of great kindness and play and organization and socialization and of course that's also true with 42 um so i would like to ask you to tell us about the final days of 42 and 21 and let, you can of course tell us the story but i'm also curious again to just hear what it was like for you personally to go through this because even reading the book it's emotional you write in the reign of wolf 21 quote late one day I watched 21 with the setting sun behind him. His shadow projected 50 feet towards me. The image struck me as symbolic of the impact he was having on Yellowstone and on the people that knew him. I had begun to think that we had entered a golden age for wolves in the park. It was a time of legends, a time when giants strode the land. It was the time of 21 and 42, end quote. It's, it's really moving stuff. Uh, and the reader of the, your book knows that you are not exaggerating. Th these are these are epical times. So I can barely imagine what it must have been like to witness those firsthand. So could you just talk us through all the emotions that you must have been going through when during the the final the final days and and weeks of of the lives of twenty one and then forty two? Yes. Um, yeah. Thank you for referring to that passage. It was a time of legends. It was a time of giants. Uh, um, you know, many of us uh, sometimes will have moments in our life where we wish we could have lived in a, you know, a great historic period, the American Revolution, you know, whatever you want to say, biblical days, uh, uh, days when Greek and Rome or Rome ruled the world, uh, whatever you want to pick. And um, I lived through this period here, the, the era of 21 and 42. Well, let's talk then about um, what happened later. So an average um, lifespan for a wolf in Yellowstone, even with them being protected here, is only about five years. In zoos, uh, where they have veterinary care, uh, a wolf could live to be 17 or 18 years old, just as long as a dog. They're really the same species, but here the average is five years. Well, 21 and 42 um, were getting close to nine years old, meaning twice as long as uh, an average wolf. They were both born with black fur, but by that time they had both turned about the same shade of gray. 
Uh, in fact, I, if I turn my head, I can look at a picture taken of them the last day that they were together. And she looks like she has a set of old fashioned uh, gray flannel underwear on. And he's not quite as gray, but he's getting there. So they were kind of like a, a married couple that had been together for 50 years or something. And the older they got, the, the more that they looked like each other. And they were still just as devoted to each other after they actually had been together for about six years, two thirds of their life. So many of us have the privilege of, of, of knowing a married couple that have been together for decades and decades. And I, I think one of the most admirable and wonderful things in the world is to know a married couple that are still devoted to each other after decades and decades of being together. And it's always a challenge to tell this story because it's so emotional and um, also a challenge in the sense that I, I don't wanna spoil the uh, the tension um, and the emotion of, of um, the 21 book, but here's what I can say. Speak only, only what you're comfortable with. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. So um, this one particular day, it was in February, it was the mating season. That day, uh, we had a, a moment of great, great privilege where 21 and 42 came together. And for one more time, mated. And um, you, you may know that as with dogs, when wolves mate, it can go on for some time, five or 10 minutes, maybe even 20 minutes. So during that time, there was a moment where they both laid down and somehow 21 ended up in this position where he put his front right paw and leg over her shoulder. In, in something that looked very um, emotional, very romantic, very compassionate. And they, they just kind of lied there in that position. Um, very striking to see that. It was at the end of the day, uh, the mating ended, they moved off a little bit, they rested, um, and then it got too dark to see. I came back in the morning and found the walls. Everything seemed normal except for one major thing, no 42. 21 was there, all the other wolves were there, and I couldn't get her signal. She had a radio caller. And 21 left the other wolves. I, I didn't quite understand what was going on at the time, but in retrospect, uh, when I went over my notes, I saw a pattern that that day and in the following days, he started um, what I would have to say was a search pattern. And I have to conclude that um, he was searching for 42. We knew what had happened that night to 42. He did not. And as far as he knew, she was missing. So for the next two months, as I went back over my records of um, where I had seen 21, where he was traveling, where he was leading the pack, their territory um, roughly ran east and west through a valley. And so he would go up the south side of the valley, then cross over to the north side of the valley, go back and forth, 
exactly like what you would do if you were for missing, if your spouse was missing or child was missing. And during those two months, he certainly was deteriorating, I think, both physically and mentally. And it came to a climax in June. He was with the, the other members of his family. Some elk came into the um, where the wolves were. Some of his adult daughters jumped up. They went after the elk. That's what wolves do. They had a hard time um, uh, getting the elk. And they looked back at their father, the alpha male, and he was just laying there. It's like he just didn't have the energy anymore to, to participate in what his family was doing. And that was the last day that I saw him. He was nine years old, pretty much totally gray. And his radio collar had stopped working by that time. So we just figured that it will forever be a mystery in Yellowstone. We will never know what happened to 21. However, um, we got a report that something was found in the mountains. And we went up there. And we went into a meadow. I knew that meadow because it was um, one of the Druid family's rendezvous sites. And I'd actually seen years before when I hiked up a mountain that 21 and 42 and their whole entire family were resting there. It was kind of their late summer home, maybe kind of equivalent uh, in a human family to having a, a cabin at the lake where the grandparents would have the adult children and the grandchildren come. And, grandparents could kind of watch from the, the porch, everyone playing. And that's where we found him. He was by himself. He'd walked up on a little hill and laid down there. And that hill, I, I would be certain, was exactly the same place that, that probably for hundreds of times when he and 42 were up there, they would have gone to that hill together, laid down side by side, rested, maybe looked out over their territory that's where he wanted to go. And um, we really couldn't find any obvious cause of death. Maybe you could say old age. Um, who can say? But I, I think for him, it was just the time in his life without 42 that he didn't have any particular reason to live on. And that's where he wanted to be when he died. We noticed that on that very hill, there was a large field of flowers that surrounded his remains. And of all the flowers that they could have been, it was the, the perfect species because they were forget-me-nots. So it was the perfect place for 21 to have his final moments, the perfect place for us to find him, the perfect place for 21's story to end. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. It is a beautiful passage in your book where you hike up there with, I believe, fellow rangers and you find him and you just convey beautifully the the sense of solemnity and, and grandeur that you're all feeling in, in the presence of the, the final resting place of, of 21 and his, his final days with 42. So it's really thank you for bringing that sharing all that with us. Part of your job during your years, uh, and to this day, I believe, at Yellowstone, was to speak to visitors about the wolves. 
You write that you once calculated that you've introduced over 100,000 people to wild wolves. You write in The Rise of Wolf 8, quote, when the crystal wolves came into view, people reacted like fans following a popular rock band. Some of them cried when they saw wolves through my scope. And one woman ran to me as the nearest government official and hugged me because she was so happy that wolves had been brought back to the park, end quote. Could you briefly just tell us about the responses that you get from people when you're able to share the wolves with them, when they look out and actually see these beautiful animals in person? Yes, um, it's a great, great privilege that um, I have ended up in this situation that I can help so many people. So typically, for many, many years, I would get out there first. Since I worked for the Park Service doing the wolf research, I would have telemetry equipment. So I would um, get the signals from the collared wolves, such as 21. And most days I would be able to find them, sometimes not. So I would have a high-powered spotting scope, set it up. And as people started to arrive, park visitors, I, was, I would be in a range of uniforms. So naturally they would ask what I was doing. I would explain and then offer them to look through my scope. And it was just the greatest thing in the world to look away from the walls and just watch the expression on their face. It was always the same. They would have a, a few moments where they would kind of need to adjust their eye and they weren't quite seeing the wolves. And then finally, there was no question when they saw the wolves because they would just light up. And uh, if it was a mother, she would uh, get her kids to look uh, uh, or the dad doing the same thing. And every person really had the same expression. So it's a pretty good thing in this world to have a, a, a position, especially if it's with the government where you can help people in that way give them a, a, a lifetime experience that they'll never forget. And boy, beyond that, there, there are just so many emotional stories that um, a number of times I've been contacted by the Make-A-Wish people where a, a kid has a dream to, to see a wolf, a kid that is sick, and we've been able to help them. Just so many stories that uh, I've had the privilege of being involved in. But Lately, I've been thinking that maybe the, the most special moment I had um, um, was uh, a situation slightly different than what I just described. I happened to be in a parking lot. Everything was normal. A few people were around. We have a lot of um, uh, wildlife tour companies that operate here. It's become a thriving business for local people. And um, one of the tour guides came over and said that he was taking a family around the park and that I speak to them for a few minutes, which I'm always happy to do. It was uh, the parents and a daughter who looked like she was maybe eight or nine years old, something like that. You know, everything was totally normal. I started to talk to them. And after a while, I, I, I realized something that the daughter was blind. And the tour guide happened to mention that the previous day, he and the family had hiked out into the backcountry and camped overnight and had just come back to their car. And I was thinking about that, and I was tremendously impressed that this uh, young girl being blind um, had the courage and determination to do that. And I, I could see that she was very confident, very self-assured. I was just amazed at her. 
And I'm so grateful that an idea came to me. I said, can you give me a moment? I'll be right back. So I, I went over to my car and I got a couple of things out and I handed her the first item. And I asked her to hold out her hands and touch it and tell me what she thought it was. And of course, her parents could look down and easily could see what was in her hand. And she, it took her a few moments and then looked in my direction with a huge smile on her face and said, is that a wolf track? And I said, yes. I'd already told her some stories about 21. And I said, that's a, that's a cast of 21's footprint. And he had just a giant paw. <laughs> he was a big guy. And so, you know, she just felt it and felt it. And it was a way to give her an experience with Wolf 21. But then I thought, gee, there's something else I can do. And we have a local sculpture here, George Buman, and he's made a life-size sculpture of 21, but he also made smaller versions of it. And I happened to have one of the smaller versions of the sculpture with me. So I ran back to my car, got the sculpture of 21 and put that in her hands. And you could see her uh, feeling it from uh, the tip of his nose to, to his tail, his legs and everything. And boy, the smile on her face. And uh, when she looked at her parents in the direction of her parents with her understanding uh, and now that connection with 21, first of all, touching the footprint and now the sculpture of him, um, boy, that was a pretty good moment to be part of. Thank you again for sharing that. Um, I know that it is not the same as being there in person, but your books are also doing something similar. They're introducing other people, many other people into this world. And I've been introduced into this world through your books. Um, so all around, you're doing extraordinary work with this park. And we're all very lucky for that. So Rick, thank you so much. I've already taken up a good amount of your time. To wrap up, could I just ask you to tell us a little bit about the, the next book or two that you're working on and, and will be working on over the, the coming months? Yes. For people that have not read my second book, The Reign of 21, one of the main supporting characters is 21's nephew, a wolf called 302. He was born into uh, another pack. Um, his mother was 21's older sister. And 302 had pretty much a personality and character that was the opposite of 21. So as good as uh, an alpha male that 21 was, uh, his nephew was the exact opposite. He would run away from fights, abandon females that he had gotten pregnant. And um, he came into 21's territory. 302 was very good looking and all the females loved him. <laughs> and he got several of 21's daughters pregnant and abandoned him. So 21 as their father had no use for 302. He actually caught him a number of times, beat him up, but 21 had that code that he wouldn't kill a wolf and always let him go. In the end, 21 had to raise the pups that had been sired by his no-good nephew. However, after the time of 21, 302 joined the Jewett pack and for many years uh, continued to be a failure as a wolf. So his story is very much the opposite of 21. But the reason I wrote a book about him was against all odds as 
Spirit too became older, he began to change. And as he changed, he became more and more and more like his famous uncle. And um, at the very end, as a, an old wolf, he actually lived longer than 21 did. He did one of our great heroic acts of, um, that ever happened in the history of wolves in Yellowstone. So that book is called The Redemption of Wolf uh, 302, and that uh, he was not such a good guy during the majority of his life that figured out how to redeem himself. And then uh, that will be out this fall. And then we're working on a fourth book now, which is about 21's granddaughter, who, uh, along with Wolf 42, was um, probably those two are our most famous. Well, she was known as the 06 female. And you did make a reference to um, the book American Wolf, where she's the main character. And so this is my chance to tell a full version of 06's story. And um, we're probably going to call that book Alpha Female, because it will not only about, be about 06's story along with her daughter's story, but also uh, it gives me a chance to emphasize the critical role that female wolves play in wolf society. We've, we've touched upon that, but I will write about not only our great alpha females, but explain um, how they manage the pack, how they plan things out, how they organize things, and how they have been critical over the millennia to the success of wolves. I don't think we've laid this out really clearly, but wolves live in a matriarchal society with the females in charge. And I, I think it's because of that leadership that they've been such a successful species for so many hundreds of thousands of years. So that will be a book dedicated to our great alpha females, particularly the 06 female. I look forward to both of those books. My my main regret with these interviews is just that we focused a lot on 8 and 42 and 21, and, and for good reason. Those are exceptional wolves, but there are so many other characters in your books. It, it really is an expansive world that you are documenting and sharing with us. So I, I cannot recommend your books more highly to our listeners. So Rick, thank you again. I, I cannot speak more highly about your two books. I think Rolf Peterson said it best when he wrote, quote, Rick McIntyre's book has no match in literature. He presents the personal lives of wild wolves in a riveting narrative without equal for its detail and insight, end quote. Anyone who reads your books is sure to be informed, amazed, and moved. Thank you so much for writing both and for writing the, the next two, for your time and insights today, and for devoting your life to this crucially important work. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Okay, I'm happy to do it, Mark. You did a great job. Thank you for um, interviewing me. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Rick McIntyre about his 2019 book, The Rise of Wolf 8, Witnessing the Triumph of Yellowstone's Underdog, and his 2020 book, The Reign of Wolf 21, the saga of Yellowstone's legendary druid pack. They are, simply put, among the finest books ever written about a non- <clears throat> They are, simply put, among the finest books ever written about non-human animals. I strongly encourage you to read them. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, 
and you've been listening to the New Books and Animal Studies channel on the New Books Network. See you next time.